Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 56 of Dead to Rights, the podcast. I'm your host, Donna Carrick. Today I'll be bringing you my interview with Lisa DeNicolitz, the author of The Witch Doctor's Bones, The Glittering Chaos, and her latest book, Rotten Peaches. You can find Lisa all over the internet. She's very active in writing circles and uh, is a well-known crime writer here in Canada. So please give a big welcome to Lisa DeNicolitz, author of Rotten Peaches. Welcome to Dead to Rights, Lisa. You've got some fantastic titles. A Glittering Chaos, West of Wawa, Between the Cracks She Fell, The Hungry Mirror. Now, I've got something to ask you. How do you come up with these terrific titles? And that'll be my first question today. Thank you very, very much for having me today as a guest. I wanted to be on your show for a while, so thank you. Um, Sometimes, actually, the entire book comes to me as a title. For example, Rotten Peaches, it was something that I'd always had. It actually came from um, the Elton John song, Rotten Peaches, which I used to listen to when I was, I don't know, 12 or 13 or something. And I always thought um, there was something just about it. There was something so sad about it. And actually, I used the lyrics of the song um, in the book. But then when we started working together on our um, in the tune, uh, in the key of 13, then I realized I couldn't use the lyrics. And fortunately, you did mention that because otherwise I you know, could have been up for all sorts of libel. Yes, but exactly. Yeah. So, some, so that was a, sometimes a title like a glittering chaos. It just came. Sometimes the titles are a bit harder, but usually they actually spark the entire book, which is a bit weird, but there it is. Mm-hmm. And you and I have had this conversation privately about titles. And as I recall, yes. you're kind of of a mind with me that, A great title is just a thing of art. Like, in my view, if you have a great work and it has a mundane title or something that has no meaning, you better get on that because titles are so important. I think, um, you know, I I grew up making titles up. That was something that I just did in my mind my whole life. I just love great titles. There's something so poetic about them, isn't there? There's something magical about them. There really is. There really is. So we got the whole title thing out of the way. Now, I want you to tell me a little bit about uh, a little bit about Rotten Peaches, because I I did research it a little bit. It looks really intriguing. I think you've got yourself a couple of really, truly evil protagonists. Yeah, they're they're pretty they're pretty nasty people. So what happened is, um, because in my daily life, in my I'm an art director and a graphic designer, and I'd been let go from Rogers, and then I got this freelance contract, and basically I was working with some people, and I thought they were really really good friends, and it turned out that they were not. They were they were pretty rotten. So I think that was what sparked the idea. But then you know the sort of mundane um, sort of nastiness, workplace nastiness, is really very boring in a book, right? So then you want to start thinking about other things that you want to say. Now, the apartheid experience, well, living there, you know, the experience, but the the time was something that was very important to me to write about at some point in my life. But it hadn't, I hadn't had the correct vehicle for it. But I felt that with Rotten Peaches, I could do that. So 
Hidden Peaches has two protagonists. The one is Leonie, and she lives in Canada, and the other is Bernice, and she lives on a farm or in Johannesburg and then on a farm um, in South Africa. And their lives intersect. Basically, they're connected by a really charming con man by the name of J-Ray. But neither Bernice nor Leonie are very nice people. And I have to say, I had great fun coming up with them. I see Rotten Peaches as a collision course between Little House on the Prairie and Pulp Fiction, which may sound crazy, but in a nutshell, that's how I would describe it. Okay, okay. So Little House on <laughs> the Prairie, and uh, what was what was the other thing you crossed Little House with? Uh, Little House on the Prairie with Pulp Fiction. With so Pulp Fiction, okay. Yeah, very Tarantino-esque. I think a, a lot of my work has been described as being, you know, sort of Christopher Moore type of work, or, you know, some people have said Quentin Tarantino, which I find highly complimentary. So I'll, I'll take Oh, that. I do too. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so uh, am I, is it safe to say that there are some random elements to their evil? Um, there are some unexpected <laughs> elements. There's yes. Some yes. Things that, and I think I work very hard on that, like to try and deliver the unexpected, you know, so that when situations come up, that something will really um, offer something new to the reader, something where they're like, oh, my goodness, I haven't read that before, and yet make it thoroughly convincing so that they couldn't. So it's not like, oh, well, that's not believable. So create something that's surprising and startling, but also very different. Yes, and still within the realm of believable, because we yes. drag, as writers, we drag these old tropes out that we learned when we were very young, like, um, keep your characters in character. Yes. Well, that's all well and good, but sometimes your characters are not who you think they are, and not yes. who the reader thinks they are. Yes. And the element of surprise is a huge hairy deal these days. Exactly. We're competing. We're competing with people who really will pull out those guns without any notice, and so we've got to be prepared to do that. Exactly. And I think, Donna, you raise a really interesting point there, that the characters are often not who we even think they are. Um, it's surprising how many times I encounter that. I have what I think is a fully fleshed out character in my mind. And then you start writing him or her, and then they change into something different. And you're like, well, there you go. So you're as surprised as the reader sometimes, which is yes. I find one of the, the biggest treats of writing, isn't it? When they It really is. It really is. I see it like um, allowing your character to walk down the street and interact with people. Yes along the way and as they interact you begin to ferret out who they are yes yes mm -hmm. exactly exactly and then of course with the right with the help of friends because I thought I had Leonie nailed and then um, a, a really wonderful writer friend of mine uh, Terry Favreau she read it she's like I'm not convinced I'm just not convinced by this person and I'm like no she's fully formed she's fully believable but she kept at me she's like no she wouldn't do this and she wouldn't do that and then I went back and uh, started working harder on Leonie and then a different Leonie came to me so sometimes as well your friends who push you hard are actually the best things in the world so yes yes absolutely absolutely <laughs> I'm not sure that I'm not sure that which one of those two really important aspects is going to be our tip for the day either bring on the unexpected or yes. make sure that you have a good critique group or a good group oh. of friends in the industry very important I'd say I'd say that one really because I'd yes. say that that's been the 
Yeah, and that's why as well I'm I'm so delighted to be part of the Madams of Mayhem because the impact of, of being part of this collective. I mean, we do so many fun events together and we have that camaraderie. But, you know, we also have, because we have our anthologies, um, I, I'm pushed to write in different directions. Like um, in the, uh, the stories that we've written have definitely resulted in novels and characters. And because of, because of the madams, I've created characters that I otherwise wouldn't have. And I've also worked mm-hmm. them harder. So, so that's, been incredibly beneficial you know uh, just yes. from a writing point of view and just from a as I say from a camaraderie point of view it's just awesome to be part of the collective and to meet up and do things together and then you learn you know other people's styles how they do things how their work comes together and things and also then together over the years you know you you see people's writing and new books come out and you get to celebrate with them. And that's a very, that's a very wonderful, creates a family type environment. You watch each other grow. And um, this is, I think that's very well said. And it taps into something that I've long, uh, I believe I've long held that um, we actually are the writers of today. And if you look at the other arts, for example, the visual arts, which I know you're very in tune with. Yes. Take just a, a... Probably the best-known group in Canada of visual artists are the Group of Seven. Yes. And when you come together as a group of artists or writers or musicians, you are going to further each other. Yes. You can't but help. Uh, Lisa, if I see that you've done something absolutely brilliant, I'm going to try to top or measure that. Exactly. Exactly. You know? yeah, that's it, Donna, because like being with you guys and I mean, you know, just the, the writing, the quality is so amazing. So it pushes me harder. I'm like, is this good enough quality? You know, no, work it harder, work it harder because, you know, I want to be, um, you know, of the level of, of the guys in the group. So that's right. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, mesdames and, and monsieur, you know, and <laughs> we yes. actually we have two messieurs coming in the, the next anthology. So I'm glad that you mentioned the anthology. We've got um, Ed Pivowarczyk, of course, yes. who's been yes. in a number of our anthologies and is also our copy editor. Yes. And we also have Kevin Thornton joining us in 2019. Yes. So that's going to be a real kick. Um, Kevin and I actually went to, to the same university, the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. Wow, that's <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we kind of remembered seeing each other from there. I think maybe we took some, one a, a couple of classes together, but because when he and I met, I think I was at Bloody Words. He's like, we look really familiar to each other, and then we chat. Of course, there's the accent, you know, dead giveaway. So like, did yes. you go to Wit? What year were you anyway? So we have that connection, which is quite hilarious. Yes, his accent is absolutely a dead giveaway. Yes. <laughs> As is yours, madame. <laughs> As is mine. Alas, it is true. If I was to ever rob a bank, I wouldn't be able to say anything because people would be like, well, she had a South African accent. so." Yes, exactly. She was wearing a mask, but it didn't help. Yeah. <laughs> the minute it. she opened her mouth. We knew thing, it was her. Exactly. Now, the other thing I wanted to ask you about today, and I don't want to let it get away, is yes. I know that you tend to bring crossing genres into your work yes can you tell me a little bit about the highs and lows of doing that and uh what prompts you to cross over genres uh well I think it's for me 
un, un, unfortunately unavoidable. Um, I really tried very hard to write pure genre novels because genre novels are easier, you know, to sell to publishers and to sell to agents and to just sell to readers. You know, you go on Amazon and if you have your book and you're like, I, you know, I write mystery or I write cozy, but I don't. I write this, I do write cross genre. And honestly, Donna, it makes things really, really difficult for me. You know, going back to when I was like young in South Africa, there were two groups. They were like, you wrote nonfiction or you wrote fiction. And that was basically it. But now, of course, you know, with the markets being what they are, people want to know exactly what, what niche you fit into. And in terms of, you know, what would the benefits be of writing cross genre? I would say they're very few, actually. And I would say that um, if you are the kind of writer who can write genre uh, instead of, you know, the crush genre, definitely write genre. Unfortunately for me, I write the way I write. And on the plus side, I have um, my wonderful, wonderful publisher in Nana Publications. And you see, in Nana, their, their, their mantra is um, fiercely feminist. And what I love so much about them is they're not hung up on genre. They're, they love good storytelling, powerful storytelling, powerful protagonists. And because of them, my books have found a home. Because of their, their outlook on life, a lot of publishers actually would look at my work and go, yeah, we don't know where she fits and that's it. So, um, and I have this a problem coming up because I'm working on this um, a time travel science fiction novel. However, it's not strictly science fiction. It's kind of a literary science fiction. So, mm -hmm. And this is one that I won't be able to pitch to Inanna because actually the protagonist um, is a male. It's, you know, he's not as strong and actually he's quite a weak and strong. Uh -huh. uh -huh. so, so, yeah, so I'm going to look for a home for that. And I think I'm going to come into, I'm going to come across some challenges for it. So, yeah, so mm -hmm. anyone out there listening, if you can write genre, just write genre. Make your life easier for yourself. Although I'm not sure there are that many yeah. that can anymore because we're so no. exposed to so much. Um, yes. I, I think of it in terms of like having a champagne taste on a beer budget. I yes. think I, I have a I have a literary flair, but a criminal mind. And it doesn't seem to matter what I start yes. out writing. Eventually, a crime is going to occur. You exactly. know exactly. <laughs> I love the way you put that. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that that was that's exactly it. Mm -hmm, mm hmm. And I do. I love literature. I love straight up literature. I know um, yes. it's kind of a it's kind of well, I don't think it's a dying art. A lot of people are still writing it and some people yes. still admit to reading it. But exactly. um, I don't think as many as once did, you know, no, no. Um, and I find a lot of the bestsellers, like I get really excited. Like you take a lot of books out of the library, right? Because uh, books are just so expensive. And sometimes I'll grab like, oh, and then pick up a bestseller. But to be honest, the writing's really quite dumbed down. There's a lot of repetition. And mm -hmm. these are the ones that are top, top, top of the list. These are not books that are even honestly, I'd be like, oh, but I read that a paragraph ago, you know. And also yeah. a lot I find with the, you know, the domestic thrillers that are really very huge at the moment. Like sometimes I'll get really frustrated. I'll be like, come on, this is this is not quality writing. And yet these are the books yeah. that are out there, you know, selling. So, and I actually, uh, to be honest, I, I tried to write one. And then um, I sent it to my dear friend, uh, Dorothy McIntosh, you know, DJ McIntosh, the fabulous, mm -hmm. fabulous author. And she comes back to me and she's like, all right, well, you did not, you did not do what you set out to achieve. She was highly complimentary about the work, but she's like, because I got, I'm going to write a 
girl book. I'm going to write a domestic thriller. And she's like, mm, no, that, that didn't pan out. So, so not for mm-hmm. lack of trying, Donna. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But we've got to have these attempts that maybe don't pan out because yes. they're all the failed roads lead yes. somewhere. They really yes. do. Um, Perhaps they lead us back to the inner core, because I think the best writing comes from the inner core. You talked about sometimes the work comes to you in a title. And and that's true of me, definitely. It'll come to me one of two ways. Either I'll see a character standing in the doorway and the character is just fully fleshed and I don't know what I'm going to do with him or her. Um, And I have to think that through. Or it'll come to me in a title that is just a snapshot of a yes. theme that I, I am dying to express suddenly. Exactly. And, and I a love those cases best. Mm. I love those cases the best. I think of them almost like a music composer. It's all there in your head. Or a painter. The painting yes. is there in your head. And the art is now to get it on the page the way you see And that is where the real difficulty lies. It's not in coming up with the story. The story is crafted. You know it's exactly what you want it to be. But now, can you express it that way to somebody else? Yes, that's exactly it. Exactly. And then sometimes I'll be like, you know, I'll be like two thirds the way through a novel. And then I'm like, please don't run out. Please don't run out. Like you'll be, you know, I hope that my story is going to keep going. So Mm -hmm. I love the way you say the characters like appear in the doorway. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> yes, I know. What are you going to do with me now? What yeah, war what you... are you going to ship me off to? What battles will I have to fight, you know? Exactly. Um, I have this character, and I think as part of our, our groups, I've probably discussed him before, and I just so much want to get back to him. But he's been something that was out of my – he requires my full attention. Right. And I just haven't had it. Um and, uh, you know, it's unfortunate when you have a character that you just know is the character of your life yes. and it's going to require everything and you just don't have that to give right at the moment. It's very frustrating. It is. I, I, know, I know what you mean. And I have this character, but he's not fully formed, but I can sense him. And I've been chasing him down for years. Um, and, and I'll try, it's almost like, you know, when you wake up and then you try and remember a dream. Yes. So I have that character and sometimes I will see someone and they will give me, it's almost like, um, a fragrance that reminds you of a memory or something. And mm-hmm. I'll be like, yes, that's the character. But yeah, so, uh, so I kind of got, but it's quite obsessing, isn't it? It's actually, it, you know, it really is. It really is. And in my case, my character is fully formed and I even know what I yeah. want him to do, right. but he can't just clunk through the pages do doing what he's supposed to do he's too good of a character for that he's got to actually he's got to sing and that's going to require my full attention I can't be doing anything else for him so I think he's maybe my retirement project well that's something to look forward to I mean it sure is yeah isn't it lovely like when you have an idea and then you know like because sometimes when I don't have an idea it's horrible then I say to Brad well Brad my husband you know it's over it's finished I will you know and then you feel so bereft but then as long as you have an idea it's like you have a best friend and it's you're and things are happy again so exactly exactly we've been watching something and I think it's on Amazon Prime I could be mistaken it might be Netflix or something else it's called Mozart in the Jungle and and I highly recommend it Lisa and I recommend it to our listeners um, because all of the arts are intertwined in my mind and what you just said is about as long as you have an idea 
And if you start watching that show, you will see how the ideas of the greats come to life. Oh, and as long as, as long as you, and it's just a great story. Right. I mean, it's like a soap opera put to classical yes. music. Um, oh. It's just, it's, a, it's loosely based on the life of a real conductor, um, but very loosely based, of course. And uh, he was the conductor for the New York Symphony Orchestra. And uh, so it follows these characters. It just builds these, these characters and the music is always there. And you see when somebody thinks they're done, like the old conductor thinks he's yes. done. And then an yeah. idea comes to him. And that's where <laughs> I was going with this long story. <laughs> so it's called Mozart in the Jungle. Yes. Yes. And it's just a brilliant, brilliant show. I really highly recommend it. And I also find that watching things like that um, really inspires me. Like we watch a lot of things on, on musicians because Brad's really big on musicians and he'll, he'll tape documentaries on musicians that I've, I've never even heard of, but mm -hmm. it's so inspiring. And then you'd be like, wow, that person dedicated their life. And I think it's so important because it's someone that like I hadn't heard of, but it's so inspiring to see how hard they worked and what they did and their commitment to their art. Because yes. I think it's truth to say, true to say, that you know being an artist in in any world today's world past worlds it's not easy it is a, you really have to um, be dedicated and walk the toughest road so mm -hmm. it's inspiring when you watch these other things and then you see these people and they got up every morning and carried on playing their guitars when even nothing was happening mm -hmm. you know you've got to keep on doing stuff Yes, yes, absolutely. We're getting a real education in the musical arts because yes. our second son, Ted, is in third year at York in the music program, and um, he is a composer. He he composes. Oh, of course, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's also an extremely gifted guitarist, and he's, te he's taught himself over the last few years piano, and he's reached the level where he has um, – actually, he's joined the, the um, Toronto Jazz Band. Oh, wow. As their pianist. Um, and that's uh, going from self-taught. And of course, since then, he's had some some proper teaching. But um, he started out self-taught on piano. So that's quite an accomplishment. And he, he's played at, a, at a, some of our events, hasn't he? He was in the uh, he was in the junior jazz band, the Etobicoke right. jazz band, and this year he will be playing with the Toronto jazz band, wow. the, the senior band. Yep. That's yeah. That's fantastic, so, Donna. Yeah, it really is. That's it wonderful. Really is. And so that's why we're getting our education in music now. Every every time we're all together, we've got something musical on. But in the yes. past, it was always the visual arts. Alec and I are just in love with Canadian artists. And it's yes. as you said, many of these people labored with no illusions of success. Mm. Exactly, exactly. Well, like, just as a treat, sometimes Brad and I'll just go to the AGO and wander around. And it's the same thing. Yeah, you just you just feel so inspired. And then because sometimes you think, oh, well, you know, why am I doing this? Why am I working so hard? And then you go off and you look at the artistry of other people out there and you go, that's why I'm doing it. It's because it's art. It's because it's there. And it's also because you have no choice. So this is, this yeah. is what we yeah. do. And not to sound too airy-fairy, but honestly, Lisa, can you imagine a life without your art? No. No, no, I can't. Neither can I. I. No, neither can would, I. Absolutely just not. Just be terrible. Well, unthinkable. Yeah, yeah. And maybe that's our tip for today. If you're not married to it, fine, then you have options. Yes. But if you're married to it and you love yes. it to that degree, you have no options. So shut up and write. Yeah, that's <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I think that is our tip for the day. <laughs> yeah, shut up and write. Exactly. Shut up and write. I love it. <laughs>
<laughs> oh, Lisa, it's been such a pleasure. Honestly, I loved reading The Witch Doctor's Bones, and I am definitely going to get my hands on Rotten Peaches. Oh, um, you, you, bring, you bring a glittering humor to it, too, uh, oh, an undercurrent of humor. And I, I, I highly recommend our readers look you up, Lisa DeNicholas, and give us your website. It is, well, you know, I often think, you know, like you would daydream about sort of titles for books, Donna. I would think about different names I should have written under because my name's so bulky, but I stuck with it. And so there it is. So it's actually, um, it's more, it's less complicated than it sounds. It's Lisa D. Nicolitz. So it's uh, L-I-S-A-D-E-N-I-K-O-L-I-T-S. And then um, that my website is lisadenicolitzwriter.com. And you can find me. You can find me everywhere on social yes, media. you can certainly Twitter, find Instagram, yes, yeah. and I'm also starting this new channel on YouTube, which is called Writer for a Year, which is also um to kind of show the behind the scenes look at going to events um you know which social media aspects work, the long road to publishing, the wins, um the highs and lows, things like that. so if you look me up also on YouTube, you can find me there and, and I really love to hear from people, so that would be great and Donna, thank you very much for having me today you're welcome it's been a pleasure and we're going to air on february 24th so we'll look forward to bringing lisa to all of you on that day i want to send a huge thank you to lisa de nicolitz for joining us today on dead to rights the podcast and now i'd love to read to you from her story troubled times which was featured in 13 o'clock by the maydams of mayhem which was published by Carrick Publishing in, I believe this one was 2015. Troubled Times by Lisa de Nicolitz. I was six then, Auntie Ethel said, in 1921, when father died. What did he die of, I asked. Heart, lungs, I don't know, Beth, she shrugged. He was fairly young, in his mid-forties. He married late, and Beatrice Ann was a young wife in her early twenties. I was a honeymoon baby. Was she very sad about your father's death? I can't say for sure, but I don't think she was. She was still young, and she had inherited a fortune. A fortune, I might add, that she had no interest in worrying about, apart from insisting that she would neither scrimp nor save, and she certainly stuck to her word on both counts. By the time she moved in with us, she hardly had any money at all. But, luckily, my Ed was always a generous and kind man. What did she spend her money on? Holidays abroad, jewelry, high teas, and maids to tidy up after her. Nothing with any kind of investment value, although she did have some good pieces of jewelry. How long did she live with you? Not long at all. She shared a flat with a woman named Rita for most of her life. Were they lovers? The thing I liked about my great-aunt was that I could speak my mind with her, and there weren't many people I could say that about. Oh, no, no, dearie, Auntie Ethel said patiently. Rita was a secretary of sorts to my mother. She was her confidante, her companion. Poor Rita, she was such a plain woman, whereas Beatrice Anne was an extraordinary beauty. Rita never married, 
but everyone knew that she was madly in love with the pastor of her church. He was a good-for-nothing fellow. Everyone knew that, too. Everyone except Rita. Poor Rita. She had remarkably sloping shoulders that you couldn't help noticing. Mind you, I'm not being an awful gossip. It was quite mesmerizing just how sloping those shoulders were. And she was in love with a charlatan. Yes, for the most part he used his looks to keep his shirts ironed, his suppers cooked, and his house cleaned. He was a very handsome man. He looked like Robert Mitchum. God rest his soul, I grinned at her. I've got no idea who Robert Mitchum is, Auntie F. Well, never mind, dear. So there was Rita living with Beatrice Anne. Did you call her Beatrice Anne to her face, I interrupted, not meaning to be rude. Oh, yes, dearie. She insisted on it. She didn't want people to think she was old enough to have a daughter my age. She chopped ten years off her age when she turned forty, went right back to being thirty, until she hit fifty-seven. Then she admitted to being fifty, and by the time she was in her late sixties, she owned up to her real age, saying that it no longer mattered what people thought. And by that time, she had lost all the family money? She had indeed, but it wasn't really her fault. You must remember that she was born into money and married money. She was educated by governesses, who all agreed that economics and numbers were too unspeakably unfeminine to even think about. Young ladies were concerned with etiquette, needlepoint, poetry and music, all the finer things in life. Must have been nice. I imagined myself in an elegant drawing room, dabbling in watercolors, while a large dog lay asleep in front of a roaring fire. You would have died of boredom, dearie. I poured another cup of tea for Auntie Ethel and passed her a lemon cream cookie. Thank you, Auntie Ethel said and sighed. I leaned toward her. Are you okay? Yes, yes, I'm fine. Sometimes I can't help thinking that if Beatrice Anne had been slightly more aware of the financial side of things, that it would have been easier for the entire family. Did she have money when she lived with Rita? She did, but it was dwindling fast. Was that why she came to live with you, because she ran out of money and Rita left her? Auntie Ethel was about to answer when the door was pushed open and my mother edged in sideways, carrying a large bouquet of flowers and a cake in a white box. I jumped up to take the cake and squeezed next to the bed while my mother navigated her way into the small room and air-kissed each of Auntie Ethel's soft powdered cheeks. I set the cake down on the small coffee table while my mother sank into a chair and held the flowers in my direction. I took them, filled a vase with water at the tiny kitchen sink, and arranged the flowers. That's lovely, dearie, Auntie Ethel called out. Leave the flowers on the bookcase. Come and have some cake. Looks like cake is the last thing she should be eating, my mother commented. She leaned back in her chair, fanning her face with a magazine. You used to be such a skinny thing, and now you're quite chubby, she said to me. Where were we? I asked Auntie F, ignoring my mother. 
We were talking about Beatrice, Anne, and Rita, Auntie Ethel reminded me. We were there to celebrate Auntie Ethel's 94th birthday, and bless her, she still had her wits about her. Oh, that old story, my mother said. The old family fortune lost by one too many high teas, etc., etc., not to mention what a supposedly great artist Beatrice Anne was. It seemed odd that I had never heard the story of Beatrice Anne before, when my mother clearly had. Beatrice Anne was a great artist, Auntie Ethel said quietly. If you asked her, she would say that she had never studied and that she had never been taught. But in fact, she had been taught and she had learned from the finishing school at Wiesbaden. Wiesbaden? I jolted upright. I had taken a gap year after high school and backpacked across Europe, visiting the big cities and working tables to make money. When I hit Germany, something inexplicable urged me to visit Wiesbaden. On a whim, I bought a train ticket and set off in the cold grey mist to check out the town. I found the place to be fairly unremarkable. There was no epiphany as to why I had felt the need to visit. But now, in the light of this mention of Wiesbaden, I wondered, had Beatrice Anne, for reasons known only to her, wanted me to go there? Had she wanted me to visit the very place where she'd studied art? I imagined her in a rowboat on the Rhine, craning her neck gracefully away from flirtatious boys. Perhaps, like me, she had a secret love. I've been to Wiesbaden, I blurted out, but had nothing more to add. My mother looked at me as if she were surprised that I was there at all, which was her usual expression when it came to me. Auntie Ethel patted my hand and continued. Beatrice Anne was a great artist. She emphasized the word great ever so slightly and gave my mother a look. My mother, smoothing an invisible crease out of her trousers, didn't notice. But it is interesting to note that she did not paint at all in the years after Rita. She did not so much as pick up a pencil or a brush. But the day before she died, she did two things. The first was to ask my aunt to go out and get her a nice piece of art paper and some oil paints. The other was to phone all her friends for a good chat. After she had made her calls, she went out into the garden and she painted the avenue of roses that led from the garden gate to the front door. She didn't just paint them from the front door of the house to the gate. Instead, she stood on the sidewalk and painted them leading up to the house. She always loved a good rose garden. As soon as she finished, she went straight to bed. In the morning, Ed went to take her a cup of tea and then came and told me that he could not wake Beatrice Anne. We knew immediately that she had died. What happened to the painting? I asked. It got lost along the way, Auntie Ethel said. So much gets lost over time. How are things here? My mother asked Auntie Ethel. Any new complaints about the objectionable Mr. Thomas? He's still cutting corners, Auntie Ethel said. We've been eating tuna casseroles for weeks now. I'd bet my last dollar that he got a deal on tuna from one of his low-life friends and pocketed the money he saved.
At least tuna casseroles are nutritious, my mother said. Aunt Ethel looked at her levelly. When was the last time you ate a tuna casserole? Still, my mother said. And other little things, Auntie Ethel said. The toilet paper is quite terrible these days. Not that one wants to talk of such things, but it is one of life's necessities. I never thought that it would be a concern at my age. I'll get you the good stuff, I assured her. Do you want me to talk to Mr. Thomas, my mother asked. Aunt Ethel shook her head. Please don't. I don't want him to think I'm a troublemaker. It would only get worse for me. Never mind. I'll be fine. Well, if you change your mind, I'll be happy to talk to him, my mother said. Would you like more tea? Auntie Ethel beamed. That would be lovely. While they busied themselves, I looked around the room at the faded floral cushions on the bed and the brown ceramic mugs carefully arranged on top of a small fridge. Butterflies, roses, teddy bears, and thick white art paper warped by water and time. It was, I thought, a holding pen for a person whose life was drawing to a close, but it was cheerful for all that, a neatly made bed, sunshine, a place for every tiny treasured thing that bore witness to a life fully lived, all pruned and snow-globed into a small cell, with a bathroom adjoining. That led me to wonder where life would find me at 94, which of course led me to Ryan, an orderly at the home where Auntie Ethel lived. It's where I'd met him, and since then he's never been far from my thoughts. God's truth, Ryan said, his gaze on the floor somewhere around the area of my left foot. I stayed overnight at my buddy's house because I didn't want to drive drunk. The next morning, when the cops pulled me over on my way to work, I didn't realize I was still legally drunk. I looked at him across the food court table and didn't say a word. I lost my license for three months, but that's okay. I deserved it. He ran his fingers through his unruly dark hair, the hair I loved to run my fingers through, too. But I didn't give an inch. I looked down at my slice of pizza, still not saying anything. He grabbed my hand and held it tight. The thing is, he said, being in the courtroom yesterday, being humbled like that, well, it gave me time to think. I walked and walked after I finished up there, and of course, while I walked, I thought about you, about our future. I looked at him, wondering what I had seen in him. Then I catalogued the lies he had told me, still unwilling to see the truth. I had been prepared for disappointment right from the start. Even so, the sucker punches still hurt when they landed. I sighed. I was grateful, given this most recent development, that I had kept our relationship hidden. The look on my face must have told him he had better come up with something better than hints at a hope-filled future. He gave a half nod and continued. You make me want to be a better man, a different man. You make it possible for me to be the man I've always wanted to be. He let go of my hand and I felt a wave of emptiness wash over me. I want to give you something. I found it and although I didn't buy it, it will tell you how I feel about you. He pushed something toward me, something glittery and beautiful and shiny. I gasped. It was a vintage Art Deco watch. 
a long rectangle of sparkly lines and curves and angles. It was extraordinarily beautiful. You found this? My voice sounded incredulous. He pulled back and glared at me. You think I lifted it? From whom? From one of the old ladies at the home, I wanted to say, but I couldn't. Despite my misgivings, I took the watch and fitted it onto my chunky wrist. The watch smiled at me, as if I had been born with it. It shone with an elegance and charm that had thus far been entirely absent from my life. I wish I had found a ring, Ryan said, significantly, and I looked up at him. You know how I feel about you, I said, but I have to trust you if we're going to build a life together. What's not to trust? Ryan, you've just lost your license. How's that for a prime example? And you've told me that Mavis has complained about you more than once and that you could lose your job. He shrugged. There are always more jobs. He blew his hair out of his eyes. And one day, the bag will make it big. You'll see. His voice took on an accusatory tone. You should have more faith. I opened my mouth to say that if they wanted to make it big, they should try turning up for the gigs they had been booked for, instead of getting wasted and forgetting where they were supposed to be. I had tried being the band's manager for a couple of weeks, but I soon realized that it wasn't good for my relationship with Ryan. I gave up and joined the other girlfriends in watching, admiring, and enthusiastically partaking of the partying that went hand in hand with the band. The trouble with Ryan was that he was so darn beautiful. Even Auntie Ethel had commented on him, saying that she always enjoyed it when the long-haired boy was around, singing and pretending to play guitar on the mob. Where did you find this? I asked, turning my attention back to the watch. It was hard to focus on anything else. Does it work? It does work. You have to wind it up. And I told you I found it, but you don't believe me. I thought you'd be happy. I'm not sticking around if you're just going to grill me. I don't need this shit. He got up and glared at me. I watched him march away through the food court and my eyes filled with tears. I checked the time. I had to get back to class. I was studying to be a dental hygienist. All I wanted was to finish the course, get a good job, have a little apartment with Ryan. If only he would straighten up just a little be more punctual at work, play a few good gigs and party less. We could really have a good life together, if only. I have to go, my mother said, and snapped me back to the present. Goodbye, Auntie F., mother said. I hope you've had a good birthday. Very lovely, Auntie Ethel said. Your Beth's a good girl. She visits me often, not just on birthdays. Her compliment fell on dead ears, and my mother smoothed her trousers. I'll put the rest of the cake on the sideboard, she said. She gave me a look as if to say I should have known to do this myself, and I blushed. I can stay longer, I offered. Auntie Ethel's happy look lifted my spirits. Come to the car, my mother ordered. I found a new Shirley Temple movie for Auntie Ethel. I forgot to bring it in. Auntie Ethel looked as if heaven had just dropped into her lap. I followed my mother outside in silence, racking my brain to try to say something of interest. My course is going well, I eventually offered, and she gave me a slight grunt of disapproval. Why you'd want to spend all day looking inside people's mouths, I have no idea, she said. 
All that's alive and black. Ugh. She gave a small shudder. And you've got a degree in English literature, all paid for. You should do something with that. Given that we had already had this conversation more than once, I did not reply. Have you had any episodes lately, she asked. I looked away in shock, wondering why she would ask me that. Of course not, I said. Why? She studied my face. I was staring at the ground, but I could feel her probing. When my mother looked at me like that, really looked at me, it was like the fingers of a blind person skimming braille. She could read messages I didn't even know were there. You've got that look about you, she said eventually. Is something worrying you? You usually have episodes when you're upset. I'm not upset about anything, I said. Try to stay out of trouble, she advised, and try not to hurt yourself either. She unlocked the car, reached inside, and handed me a plastic bag. Make sure you set it up for Auntie Ethel, she said. You know she still struggles getting the DVD to work. I will, I said, and I was going to say something about how nice it had been, the three of us together, when my mother got into the car, snapped her seatbelt into place, and drove off without so much as a wave. I stood there in the late evening heat of the Indian summer, trying not to think about what my mother had said. Of course I wasn't having episodes. I was perfectly happy, and I didn't know why she had to come and ruin everything. I dug the watch out of my jeans and looked down at it, turning it over in my hand and loving the sparkles that flashed in the sunlight. Granny Jean's really losing it, I heard a voice say. I turned around to see a mother and daughter heading toward a nearby car. She's been losing it forever, the daughter replied, checking her phone as she spoke. She hasn't been losing jewelry forever, the mother retorted. I swung around in shock. Jewelry? I hoped they would say more, but if they did, I couldn't hear it because they got into their car and drove off. Jewelry? Surely this wasn't just a coincidence. Granny Jean loses and Ryan finds. I put the watch back into the pocket of my jeans, feeling slightly sacrilegious. Something that beautiful demanded to be treated with more respect than being stuffed in and yanked out of a pocket. Who is Granny Jean, I asked Auntie Ethel when I was back in her room. Not sure, dearie, Auntie Ethel said. There's a lot of us here. I stick to myself. I don't need new friends, not at my age. What happened between Rita and Beatrice Ann, I asked. You were going to tell me before Mother arrived. Beatrice Ann drove Rita mad, Auntie Ethel said. And one of the bones of contention was that Beatrice Ann would persist in listening to horrible ghost stories every night on the radio, with the volume turned up high. She would shriek alarmingly and most distressingly during the entire broadcast. And at each utterance of anguish, Rita would rush into the adjoining room, her nightgown billowing voluminously, fearful of finding a terrified Beatrice Ann lying dead on the floor, only to be hushed and admonished for interrupting. Poor, slope-shouldered Rita would always leave in an angry huff, only to be roused some hours later by Beatrice Ann in need of an aspirin and a hot drink to calm her ghostly, frightened nerves. I loved the way Auntie Ethel told a story. She had always been my person of refuge, even when I was a little kid. My mother dropped me off whenever I had an episode because she said Auntie Ethel could deal with me when no one else could. 
I don't remember having episodes, only fuzzy memories of people being angry with me. But I do remember lying snug and cozy, tucked in a warm blanket, with coloring nightlights swirling softly overhead, while Auntie Ethel told me stories. She was a born storyteller, visiting orphanages and hospitals to tell tales to the kids there. She was given a community service medal by the mayor, and there was a framed article on the wall about it. I was lucky to have Auntie Ethel, and that's why I visited her as often as I did. No one else was in my corner like she was, not even Ryan. So no, Auntie Ethel said musingly, it was not a successful living arrangement at all. No one knows what really happened in the end. The prevailing rumor was that Beatrice Ann was set to run off with the pastor until he learned that she had lost all her money, and then Rita found out about the whole thing, which would explain the end of their friendship. But all we know for sure is that it ended in blows, and that Rita packed her bags and left that same night. No one knows where she went. She simply vanished, and all Beatrice Ann would say was that she couldn't remember what the argument had been about or what had happened. Then she came to live with us, and she said she never wanted Rita's name mentioned again. Anyway, dearie, I am getting rather tired. I think I am ready to watch my Shirley Temple film now, if you don't mind. Of course I don't mind, I said. I loaded the DVD into the machine and got the movie running. I'm just going to the vending machine, I said to Auntie Ethel, but her attention was firmly on the TV. She barely nodded as I left her room. I went around to the nurse's station thinking that the supervisor, Mavis, one of Ryan's least favorite people, would be able to tell me where to find Granny Jean. Mavis knew everything and everyone. I was about to approach the desk when Mr. Thomas, the manager of the retirement home, came out of his office. He was the one responsible for Auntie Ethel having to eat tuna casseroles for weeks on end and wipe her poor bottom with cardboard. I felt a wave of hatred that brought an ugly heat to my face. I quickly pressed my back against the wall so he wouldn't notice me. Mavis, he yelled. I don't feel good. I'm going home. Mavis barely looked at him. As I watched Mr. Thomas leave, I saw him drop a small ringed tag with a key attached. I rushed over and picked it up and was about to call out to him when I changed my mind and watched him head out. I turned the key over in my hand. Main office was neatly written on the label. I had the key to his office. It occurred to me that I didn't have to ask Mavis anything. I could find out what I was looking for in Mr. Thomas's office. The room number to Granny Jean's humble abode, and what's more, I could see if I could find any evidence of tuna fish and toilet paper being bought on the cheap. Mavis slammed the phone down and strode past without noticing me. I seized the moment, unlocked Mr. Thomas's office, and slipped inside, taking the key with me. The office was neat and uncluttered, except for a large pile of winter coats in the corner. The desk surface was bare except for a calendar, a pot of pens, and a telephone. I decided that the filing cabinet was the best place to start. 
I opened the top drawer and found it full of computer cables and electrical outlets. The second drawer contained unopened reams of paper. The third was stuffed with old gym clothes that stank of rancid sweat, and I couldn't close it quickly enough. The fourth drawer held a mother load of treasure. I knelt down, unable to believe my eyes. There, solidly packing the whole drawer, were bags of weed and bricks of hash. The soothing fragrance wafted up to greet me, and my mouth watered. I froze at a loss what to do next when I heard the unmistakable sounds of Mr. Thomas shouting Mavis's name from down the hallway. I turned and threw myself under the pile of coats, crawling into the center, curling up quickly and lying dead still. I heard Mr. Thomas turn the doorknob and rush inside. He headed straight for the bottom drawer of the filing cabinet and pulled it open. He gave a loud sigh of relief when he saw his stash was untouched. I could hardly breathe. My cave was hot and almost airless, but I couldn't risk moving an inch in case the coat slid off. I wouldn't be able to explain being in his office, not to mention hiding in a huge pile of smelly winter coats. The coats were scratchy, in the way an old feather pillow annoys your cheek in the middle of the night, and it wasn't long before I was drenched in sweat. Mr. Thomas closed the filing cabinet drawer, and I heard the squeak and groan of an office chair. Oh, God, he was sitting down. Who knew how long he would be? I heard him pick up the telephone receiver and punch in a number. It's me. There was silence. Yeah, well, I wouldn't have called, but I wanted to see if you can come and pick up the stuff tonight. More silence. I know, I know, we said the weekend, but I'm here now, and I just thought... Silence. Okay, no worries. Uh, no, no, there isn't a problem. We'll stick to the plan. He put down the receiver. Mavis, he yelled, get in here. I heard the sound of Mavis's shoes on the carpet. Where are the spare keys to my office, he asked her, pulling desk drawers open as he spoke. At your home, Mavis answered calmly. You always said it was safer to keep them there. Oh, yeah, right. I could feel him thinking while more sweat pooled in the small of my back. You still can't find your keys, Mavis offered helpfully. Thomas snorted. Wouldn't be asking you if I could now, would I? I'm going home to get my spares. You keep an eye on the office while I'm gone. Can you manage that? It might just be in my repertoire of manageable responsibilities, Mavis replied, but the sarcasm was lost on Mr. Thomas. Good girl. I'll be about an hour. I heard them both leave and close the door behind them. I didn't want to risk moving until I was certain they were gone, but I finally couldn't stand it any longer and crawled out from under the pile of coats. I gulped in gigantic breaths of precious cool air. I sat on the carpet, my chest heaving. I was still catching my breath, but I was also furious at Mr. Thomas. How dare he deal drugs on the premises when he was supposed to be looking after my beloved great-aunt? I had no idea what to do. There was no way I could hustle that many blocks of hash out without anyone seeing me. Besides, was that what I really wanted to do? I didn't want to encourage Ryan to fall deeper into a life of crime. I wanted to steer him away from it. 
But could I take a brick, just one, you know, just for recreational purposes, and hide it under my sweater? But how would I explain it to Ryan? What about taking one of those big bags of weed? Whatever I was going to do, I'd better do it fast. And what about the real reason I was there, to find out which room Granny Jean was in? I crawled behind the desk, opening the filing cabinet, and lifted out a brick of hash. I stuffed it into the waistband of my jeans and pulled down my T-shirt. I tiptoed over to the door and cracked it open, willing it not to creak or make any kind of noises. I could hear Mavis's voice. She was arguing with sweet old Mr. Arbuthnot, who said that the vending machine had eaten his money again. You're not supposed to be eating candy after your dinner anyway, she said. I clearly heard Mr. Arbuthnot's expression of disdain at her comment. Why's there a vending machine then? Like I tell you every time, it's for the visitors. I want my money back. Make it give me my money back. It probably just needs a good shake. Come on, I'll help you. This was exactly what I needed to hear. I watched her walk away with old Mr. Arbuthnot, and then I quickly slipped out of the room and walked down the hallway away from the direction of the vending machine. My T-shirt was stuck to my back, and my hair was wet with sweat. It suddenly occurred to me that Mr. Thomas would check his stash as soon as he got back, and sure as eggs as eggs, he'd spot the missing brick. I wished I hadn't taken it. I wanted to run back and replace it, but I couldn't risk it. Mavis was sure to return soon, and I was lucky to have gotten out scot-free. I snuck out a side door and bumped into Granny Mary, leaning on her walker and sucking hard on a fag. She looked startled and guilty. Can I have one, I asked her. She immediately relaxed and dug into her dressing gown. I drew hard on the cigarette, feeling dizzy but calmer. Don't tell Mavis, Granny Mary said. She thinks I've given them up. What's the point at my age? Take away my one pleasure. I won't say a word, I promised. The brick of hash was digging into my stomach. It was hot outside, and I wondered if the drug's pungent fragrance would soon be making its presence felt. I really should have thought things through better. I took another drag and said goodbye to Granny Mary. I walked around the side of the building, crushed the cigarette, and entered the front lobby. I signed myself out, making it look as if I had gone before Mr. Thomas had left for the first time, before he realized he had lost his office key. I jogged across the garden, went down to the bus shelter. Catching sight of a payphone, I decided to call the cops and leave an anonymous message about Mr. Thomas's stash. I dug into my pockets for some spare change, and it was then that I realized what an idiot I had been. My purse was still in Auntie Ethel's room, along with my wallet and my phone and everything. Now I was really stuck. The brick of hash was still stuck to my stomach. Just then a bus pulled up and the doors opened. Getting in? The driver asked me. I nodded. If I've got enough money... I pressed the brick against me while I rooted in the pockets of my jeans, coming up with a dollar. I'm short, I said to the driver, and turned to leave, but he shrugged and motioned me up. I thanked him and made my way to the back of the bus, sitting down with relief. I looked out the window, gnawing at my lip, not sure what to do. I got home, and fortunately my roommate was there to let me in. 
She wasn't interested in my story of having left my bag at the retirement home. I buried the brick of hash behind some sweaters and searched through all my jackets, looking for spare change. I found ten dollars and loonies and quarters, all of which weighed a ton, and I threw them into a little beaded cocktail purse I had bought for one of Ryan's fancier gigs. I've got to go and fetch my bag, I told my roommate, who barely shrugged as I left. I took a bus back to the retirement home and stopped at the payphone I had passed earlier. I called 911, deepened my voice as much as I could, and affected a British accent. I probably sounded really weird. You should search the cabinet at Mr. Thomas's office in the retirement home at Ben Lamond Avenue, I said. Glenwood's, the retirement home across from the Baptist Church, just north of Kingston Road. He's got drugs in there, very bad drugs, and he shouldn't be in charge of looking after our loved ones. I repeated all the details three times and hung up. I signed in at the visitor's desk. Fortunately for me, there had been a shift change and I wasn't questioned as to why I was returning after so short a time. When I opened Auntie Ethel's door, she was fast asleep in her chair, the Shirley Temple movie long since having ended. Closing the door, I went in search of Mavis and found her on the phone. When she had finished her call, I asked her where I could find Granny Jean. Most likely watching TV, she said, pointing to the common room. Um, what does she look like, I asked, knowing the question sounded stupid. Mavis gave me a funny look. She's got bright red hair. You can't miss her. Thanks, I said. As I was about to enter the common room, I saw a couple of policemen at the front door heading for Mavis. I decided that the faster I could engage Granny Jean and Chatter, the better. I spotted her immediately. She was sitting on the saggy brown sofa, staring open-mouthed at the TV channel that was reporting on traffic and weather conditions. I sat down next to her. Hi, I said. She didn't blink or turn her face to me. Do you want me to change the channel, I asked. Again, she didn't move. I realized I wasn't going to get any help from Granny Jean in solving the mystery of Ryan's found treasure. There was no sign of the policeman on my way back to Auntie Ethel's room, but I could see that Mr. Thomas's office door was open. I assumed the police were inside. I suddenly froze with fear. What if they found my fingerprints on the cabinet? or on the plastic wrap of the drugs. Once again, I was filled with anger at my own stupidity, and once again I regretted taking that brick of hash. I quickly walked back to Auntie Ethel's room and found her awake and getting ready for bed. I get so tired these days, she said. An early night for me, dearie. Thank you for the visit. I always love to see you. Let me help you with your nightie, I said, easing it over her head. Where are your bed socks? We don't want your feet to get cold. You are such a good girl. She put one hand on my shoulder. Tell me, dearie, is everything all right with you? Oh, yes, I said. I've got a boyfriend. I've been meaning to tell you about him, but it's too late now. You must get some sleep. I'll come back tomorrow and tell you all about him. I know you'll really like him. I helped her get under the covers. I like anybody who takes good care of you, dearie. Oh, he does, I assured her. Look at what he gave me. Don't get the wrong impression. He doesn't have any money, really. But he said he found this and wanted me to have it. 
I dug the watch out of my pocket, and Auntie Ethel sat straight up in bed and stared at it, as if she had never seen anything that beautiful before. She was speechless. I know, I said. It's so beautiful, isn't it? I wasn't sure if I should keep it, but he said he found it, and I trust him. It seems to be a very valuable piece, Auntie Ethel finally said. I would love to meet your young man, Bethy. And you will. I picked up my purse and turned out the light. Now you sleep tight and I'll see you tomorrow. I walked past the office, alarmed to see that more police officers had gathered outside. I increased my pace, signed myself out quickly, and once again found myself waiting for the bus. I dug into my purse, pulled out my cell phone, and called Ryan. It's me, I said. Listen, Rye, I've done a bit of a stupid thing. But before I tell you anything, I need to know something. Where did you find the watch? I have to know before I tell you anything. He sighed. Remember that gig we did for that rich girl's birthday party? The one where they had that huge tent in the garden, and we were only allowed in the house to use the washroom next to the kitchen. Yes, I remember. It had been one of their best gigs ever. It was during one of our most difficult periods, when I'd been desperately afraid he was going to leave me. It seemed that all we did was argue, and believe me, there was no shortage of gorgeous girls lining up, showing off their smooth, flat bellies, and making eyes at him. He always promised me I was the only one who mattered to him, but how could I be sure? And my mother was right. I had gained some weight, eating comfort food because I'd been so miserable. So, yes, I remembered that gig very well. The next day, Ryan continued, I heard something rattling around where I keep my spare strings and my capo and stuff. I opened it up and found the watch. Where do you think it came from? No idea. All I know is that I packed my picks and my strings and it wasn't there. And then the next day it was. I've been keeping it to surprise you. First, I wanted to see if anybody reported it, but nobody did. I didn't want to give you something stolen. I even asked a buddy of mine, a PC on the force, to give me the heads up if he heard that any shit had been stolen. And then I screwed up, and I lost my license. I wanted to make things good with you, since I knew you'd be pissed off. And you were. I gave it to you then. I was silent. I swear to God, Beth, I'm telling you the truth. It's such a lame-ass story. Don't you think if I was going to lie about it, I would make up something better? He had a point there. He could sense I was relenting. Maybe that girl gave it to you, I said. The birthday girl. Rich like that, maybe she thought it would make you like her. Whatever. You know I'm not interested in her. What happened with you? Come on, tell me. I'm at the phone booth, the one at the bottom of Glenwood's. Can you come and get me? Oh, yeah, sure. Oh, shit, I can't drive. I keep forgetting. Listen, I'll take a cab, okay? Don't move. Sit tight and wait for me. I hung up and crouched down to hide under a tree. While I was waiting for Ryan, more cop cars pulled into the home, their lights flashing with importance. I felt like I couldn't breathe. Why had I taken that brick? Why had I touched the others? And why, oh, why had I called the cops? After what felt like a decade of waiting, I finally saw Ryan's cab pull up. I ran up to him and dragged him to sit under the tree with me. Then I told him the whole story. You stole a brick, he sounded amused. That's righteous, Beth. 
Listen, don't worry. If the cops find your prints, just tell them the truth. You were in a fuckwit's office trying to find something. Oh, shit. What were you trying to find? Evidence he was buying crap toilet paper and cheap tuna fish, I promptly replied. He looked baffled, but he nodded. Yeah, sure, you were looking for that. And then you found the hash and you touched it, but you immediately called the cops. Fuckwit isn't likely to count his hash, and who'd believe him anyway? The less there is for the cops to find on him, the better for him. It'll lessen his sentence. Don't even think about it. I know a buddy who'll sell it for us and get some nice coin. I suddenly felt hot tears pouring down my cheeks. I wiped my nose on my arm. Gross. Sorry. I just got such a fright is all. He moved closer to me and put his arm around me. I love you, Beth. Sometimes you drive me nuts, but I love you. I'm doing my best for us. Can you see that? Yes, I said, still crying. I do, but listen, I want to go and check on Auntie F. I kind of just left her. I'll wait here, Ryan said. I'm not on the roster, and I don't want anyone wondering why I'm there. Keep this, I thrust my purse at him. I won't be long. I walked up the long green lawn and entered the building. The cops were now clustered around the coffee machine, joking with each other. Excuse me, miss, one of them called out. Can we help you? It was my great-auntie Ethel's 94th birthday today, I said, and I forgot something in her room when I left. I won't be long. Why are you all here? Someone reported an incident, the constable said. Everyone okay? I thought it best to act surprised and curious. Everyone's fine, the constable said. I'll let you go then. I smiled, hoping he wouldn't wonder about my teary, swollen face. I got to Auntie Eth's room and opened the door quietly. The room was dark and I crept in. I knew every inch of it intimately. Auntie Ethel was right when she told my mother I visited often. I did. I crept closer to the bed and saw that she was fast asleep with one hand on the coverlet, close to her face. Her breathing was shallow but even, and her mouth was slightly open. I patted her warm back, but lightly. I didn't want to wake her. I love you, I whispered. Then I crept back out as quietly as I had come. Of course, I had no way of knowing that Auntie Ethel opened her eyes as soon as I had left the room. She hadn't been asleep at all. She had been lying there, wide awake, filled with sadness, wondering why I had stolen the watch from her when she had planned to give it to me all along with all of Beatrice Ann's jewelry. She knew I wasn't feigning ignorance about not knowing where the watch had come from. She had shown it to me only one time when I was very young. But, true to my style, when I was having one of those moments, I had no recollection of ever having seen it. She wondered what was troubling me, because I only ever suffered my thieving fugues when I was stressed or worried about something. I stole when anxious or upset. Then I'd deliver my offerings to whoever was causing my distress, while having no memory of the theft or the gift-giving. Then I'd have to suffer the confusion and embarrassment of trying to explain to both parties what had happened. Auntie Ethel thought about Ryan, that beautiful chaotic boy, and figured he must be the reason for my current agitation. She had no proof, but she was sure he was the new boyfriend I had referred to. Even at a glance, she could see that Ryan was unreliable at best. She knew that she would be leaving the world soon, and there was nothing she could do to help me. There was no point in talking to my mother, 
my episodes had always made her angry, as if they were something I was doing on purpose to punish her. With no solution at hand, Auntie Ethel lay awake all night, thinking and worrying. The worst of it was that she blamed herself. If she hadn't stolen the watch from Rita all those years ago, that terrible argument would never have happened. Now I had to live with inheriting the worst of the family madness. Ethel had taken the watch, Rita's prized possession, on a whim on one of her visits when she had found it dropped close to the floorboards the morning after a particularly harrowing ghostly evening. Ethel was going to give it back to Rita, who was still shaken from Beatrice Ann's antics the previous night. Instead, she had quickly slipped it into her pocket, hardly aware of what she was doing, driven by compulsion and craven need. It was all Ed's fault. He had been stepping out on her. She knew he had. He was kind and generous to a fault, but he was not the faithful sort. She had been convinced that he was going to leave her, and he was all she had. So she pocketed the watch. When she got home, she dropped it into Ed's desk drawer, and the incident faded from her memory entirely. She didn't recall that she had taken it even, when Rita and Beatrice Ann had their violent falling out. Her memory was jogged only when she was cleaning out Ed's things after his fatal heart attack. She stared at the watch in horror, seeing in her mind's eye her quick magpie stoop to grab it up and whisk it away. She felt shame and humiliation about what she had done. Too late. Too late to make it right between Rita and Beatrice Anne. Now, too late to help me. Her fault. Her bad blood flowed through my veins, blood tainted by weakness and fear. It was all her fault, and she couldn't think of a way to make it right. The End and that has been Troubled Times by Lisa DeNicolitz, who was our guest today on Dead to Rights, the podcast. Hope you've enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed sharing it with you. If you're a published author and you would like to join us for an interview on Dead to Rights, please email me at carrickpublishing at rogers.com and say Dead to Rights interview in the subject line. We'd love to hear from you. We're in particular looking for crime writers to interview, so if you're a crime writer, I'll be delighted to hear from you. You can contact me anytime at carrickpublishing at rogers.com if you've got any questions regarding the writing industry or art, or you can contact me through Facebook, Donna Carrick, or my husband, Alex Carrick. We're also on Twitter, at Donna underscore Carrick and at Alex underscore Carrick. Or you can find us at Dead to Rights Pod or at Carrick Pub. So we'll look forward to hearing from you anytime. All music, including our theme song, Eyes of Gold, has been composed and performed by Ted Carrick. You can find Ted's music at Ted Carrick Music at YouTube. Glad to have you here this week, and we'll see you next week.
figures have turned my gold And I told you what you told me We'd never be in the same boat for free Yet it rides Let it ride